Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. McClendon. I'm a historian of early modern England, and today we are talking about Tannhäuser, written in the 19th century, a period about which I know nothing. So it is for that reason that I have invited my friend Sam Keeley to talk about 19th century Germany. And of course, we have Jeremy Frank with us too, who's going to uh, talk to us about the music. So I'm going to throw out a few questions and see what we can learn about this opera and the period in which it was written. So I think the first thing that I would like to ask is just sort of about the time period. We know that Wagner started writing this opera in the early 18th 1840s, 1842, 1843, uh, when he was the Koppelmeister at the Royal Court of Saxony in Dresden. Let me start with Sam. What can you tell us about this period in German history? Can you kind of set the scene for us? Sure. Uh, thanks, Muriel. And thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, going to be great. The thing that you need to know about 19th century Germany in the wake of Napoleon's defeat in 1815 is that there was a reorganization of the German states that would eventually make up Germany, but Germany as a concept, as a nation state, was not yet unified until 1870. So at this time, there were actually about 39 different kingdoms and states that made up the area, along with a few free cities that you've heard of, like Berlin and Hamburg. So one of those states, one of those German states was Saxony where Dresden is, where Wagner was. The other thing to keep in mind is that in the wake of Napoleon's defeat, there was a lot of agitation among people for unification of some kind. A lot of questions being asked in the culture, what does it mean to be German? What does it mean to have a German state? There were different ideas about how this would be arranged, about what Germany might look like. But um, in the first part of the 19th century, from about 1815 until the late 1840s, the idea for Germany popularly was something akin to a liberal, lowercase r, Republican, ground up movement for democracy and, and so forth. So Wagner, as a young man was writing within this cultural milieu. And the thing that you need to understand about Wagner in this time, especially is that, and throughout his life really, is that he wanted to promote an idea of a mythical German culture, a German culture that was rooted in something ancient or rooted in something medieval, something that had existed in continuity for quite some time. And this was actually quite a heavy lift because the different states of Germany were not united into one political border and they spoke different dialects. They had different religions. Catholics and Protestants were kind of arguing with each other during this whole time. So fast forwarding to the 1840s a little bit, as you mentioned earlier, Wagner was the court conductor, right, in, in Saxony, which is the state where Dresden is between uh, 1842 and 1848. But in 1848, and this is the key thing, 
1848, a series of revolutions broke out in Germany, uh, all across Germany, the German states, and all across Europe. And these revolutions were violent. They were suppressed by the various kings and the militaries. This led then to a period of, of reaction. But Wagner himself was involved in one of these revolutions in Dresden. He assembled hand grenades. He was a lookout during some of the military movements. And he wrote some revolutionary pamphlets. So he was kind of, he felt an affinity for this kind of revolutionary sentiment. And I think that he saw his art as a way to kind of promote these revolutionary ideals. But after the revolution was crushed in 1849, everyone who was involved in that was suspect by the state. So there was a warrant for his arrest and he went into exile for 12 years in Switzerland um, and in Paris at various points. Well, thanks. Ah, that's amazing. <laughs> Jeremy, do you know anything sort of about what was going on musically at this time? Do you have anything to, to add to that? Well, what a beautiful like distilling of um, some really complicated history. Um, you know, from a musical standpoint, when we think about Wagner's work, he's one of the two huge titans of Romantic era opera that really changed the game. I can't remember if we spoke on the last podcast or not about the beginning of the Romantic era. And it's not actually so important necessarily to talk about the beginning of it. But, you know, in mid-century, mid-19th century, um, something that had started as a romantic movement that uh, shifted a focus onto uh, the individual. And as you mentioned, stretching back to medieval history and creation of national myths, music sort of uh, doubled down in a way, and uh, romanticism took a turn and and got even more spicy, I guess we could say. And and Wagner sort of is a person uh, being a revolutionary who lies on both sides of that continuum. Wagner has about ten operas that we consider part of the the his standard repertoire. So when we do them at opera houses, you're talking about one of 10 titles. Tannhäuser happens to be the third of them. Uh, the two that come before are Rienzi and Flying Dutchman. But in many ways, this represents the beginning of where Wagner was going to go for the rest of the decades of his life. He's not all the way there yet, but creating a piece that uh, steals freely from history, but also the mythology that surrounds that history, and then employing it to his own purposes uh, to tell stories of, of personal redemption and personal failure or success. Um, that sort of becomes the direction that his later works will happen, notably in the ring cycle, where we meet all of these people who are also gods, uh, but who have very human characteristics and foibles, just like we all do. Well, you know, one could argue at the end of the ring cycle, we're talking about a complete annihilation of the entire world and rebirth thereof. Um, this is like the first inkling of a little, little idea of that kind of rebirth and re, 
reconnection after death. Well, great. Thanks to both of you. I'd never heard the word Wagner and hand grenade used in the same sentence before. So this has been, this has been very enlightening. I um, think his hands, his hands. <laughs> Whoever would have thought? Oh my goodness. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the opera itself. So we know that Wagner drew on several sources, I think, as you both mentioned. And we know that one of them was material that described a song contest at Wartburg Castle. And Wartburg is in Thuringia. And that's a place that is, I guess, very well known in, in Thuringia. So what should we know about the castle? What should we know about Thuringia? Okay, this is, uh, this is great. There's a few things you should know about the Wartburg Castle. In the 19th century, in 1817, remember I mentioned that there was this unleashing of some nationalist sentiments in the German population. In 1817, there was a festival at this Wartburg Castle that was attended by many hundreds and thousands of students. This was a place that had some kind of symbolic meaning for these early revolutionaries, early movements for kind of a nationalist or a liberal um, reimagining of a German state. Why? Because this very castle is where Martin Luther had taken refuge during the Protestant Reformation. This is where he had translated the Bible into German. Um, so the Wartburg Castle kind of offers us a double symbolic meaning, not only as the site of the Zengerkrieg, which is part of the opera. But this is also the location of Martin Luther's resistance to Catholicism, kind of a German declaration of resistance to the reach from the reaches of, of the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. And in the medieval period, um, you know, Thuringia or Turingen, the German state, also has this kind of long history. Um, includes, by the way, the current German cities of Jena, Weimar, for which the Republic was named in the 20th century, and so forth. This is kind of a central state in Germany, but the key thing to know is that it had a lot of symbolic meaning for, for Germans at the time. Um, and in the wake, this, was, this Wartburg festival that I mentioned was in 1817. Um, at this festival, these students were burning books. What books were they burning? They were burning books that were, quote, un-Germanic, stuff that was written by hardcore conservatives, uh, monarchists, and things like this. It was a kind of anti-conservative rally, if you will, that happened at this Wartburg Castle. But this actually ties back to what Jeremy mentioned a minute ago about romanticism, because the romantic movement really played on this idea of the need for symbols in society, a reaction against the, the enlightenment of the 18th century. They wanted to reintroduce feeling again, um, and emotion into humanity. The romantics complained that feeling and emotion had been stripped away because of an overemphasis on reason and rationalism. So this was happening in every sphere of culture, not just in opera or music, but also in churches and in civil society, painting, everything else as well, poetry. So at the same time, tons of monuments and statues are being built 
all across the German states at this time where people could go to worship, not of God, but to worship the nation. So this is a create, this is a moment at which monuments, romantic movements, songs, operas, everything is kind of geared towards this direction about feeling a connection to something that is a German state or that will become a German state. So beautifully said. As I was thinking about the Wartburg Castle, which I didn't know so very much about before I started studying the historical part of all of this, it seems to me like the castle itself was constructed in the Middle Ages, uh, I think the 11th century. Uh, and um, I, I thought it was so interesting, Muriel, that last time we were talking about Trovatore, uh, of course, that um, word in English we call a troubadour. And in many ways, this opera too has a title character who is a troubadour, but we call it in German a minnesänger. The etymology is just a little bit different. We talked last time about how troubadour may have come to us through the Arabic language, through its word stem that might mean to strike or to sound an instrument. But uh, minizang or minizanger, uh, the first word minna is an old German word that means love. And so uh, these are people, men, presumably, who, but there were women too, uh, who sang love songs and, and this, uh, courtly poetry. Um, so in many ways, Wartburg Castle uh, seems to me like the Carnegie Hall of the 13th century, you know? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, I had to look up so many words to just understand the plot of this, this show. Um, you come across the term Landkauf or uh, Landgrave, which we use in English. Um, and in fact, that term existed in the Carolinas in the US around the time of the founding of our nation. It is a person like a count, uh, just slightly lower than Duke, who is the person who rules everything. So, you know, if one of the ideas of this podcast is how history and opera intersect, I found it to be so interesting that this is a mythologized story, but Wagner drew on people who actually existed. Hermann I, who actually was the Landgraf uh, from a certain period, uh, 1155 to 12, or he lived from 1155 to 1217. And he actually did have a niece, uh, Elizabeth of Hungary, um, who is actually Elizabeth in, in this show. Their actions and the way that they interact with each other are fictionalized and serve Wagner's purposes. But uh, he gets this sheen of verisimilitude or, or something like that from drawing on actual historic places and people. Yeah, absolutely. History is everywhere. History is, is absolutely everywhere. I think this is a good opportunity to dig even deeper into the opera and talk a little bit about the protagonist himself, Tannhäuser. He is described as a Franconian knight. And so I'd ask both of you to tell us where Franconia is and what do you think would be helpful for us to know about it? Franconia is uh, an area that doesn't have a state anymore in Germany, but it encompasses large part of what is today Thuringia and Bavaria, um, parts of Hessen. So it's that kind of central and southern central region of Germany, kind of northern Bavaria. Um, and the thing to know about, about Thuringia and about Franconia, this was an area that in the Thirty Years' War, 
had been completely decimated. Um, they had reportedly lost about half of its population at that time. As a result of that, there were a ton of Protestant refugees who went into this region. So throughout the early modern period and into the 19th century, Franconia kind of takes on this, again, Wagner always looking back to um, the past, has a kind of idyllic historical symbolic position as something that is prototypically German. It's a Protestant, okay, a Protestant region. It's kind of removed from the major metropoles, but he's trying to tap into this long medieval tradition of this Franconian area um, that stretched all the way back to the sixth century through the 15th century as a way of saying that this too belongs to our shared German heritage. And I was actually thinking about something that Jeremy was saying a few minutes ago about trying to tap into this. And I was doing my research for this podcast. I, I found an amazing book from the 1960s by a historian named Kurt von Westerhagen, who wrote a book called Richard Wagner's Dresden Library. So in this book, he read all 169 books that were in Wagner's library in order to try to reconstruct what, his, what he was reading, what his thoughts were, and so forth. And of those books, what was in there? Well, it was classics from antiquity, legends and folktales from the Middle Ages, Renaissance works, Baroque literature, all the way from Shakespeare to Calderon, a lot of contemporary literature too in the 18th and 19th century and some philosophy, but a lot of it was ancient Greek and a lot of it was, was medieval folk tales. So he's trying to tap into this shared ancient German-ness and Thuringia and Franconia are absolutely symbolic of that. Jeremy, could you tell us a little bit about the opera? Could you perhaps give us a synopsis of the opera and tell us things that we might take away from this? Two things that I, I'll frame the synopsis in terms of what Sam was just saying. One of the things that made my ears perk up was when Sam said that this area is far from our, all of the metropoles. That speaks to me because I grew up in eastern Montana, in fact, in a town that is one of the most isolated places in North America. And so, <laughs> you know, one of the big themes of romanticism globally is that nature is good. Like we want to reconnect with our emotions, but we also want to reconnect with things that are natural and not just rational. The mythology plays into that too. It's interesting to hear you talk, Sam, about uh, Wagner's library in Dresden and all of the emphasis both on, on antiquity and the mythology there, but also this proto-German mythology. And that's actually exactly where, where this story comes from. Tannhäuser, too, was a real person. Uh, he was a real Minnesänger, and uh, we know a tiny little bit about him historically, but there's a huge myth attributed to him, which is half of the mythology that Wagner puts into this story. So actually, I'll just give the synopsis of Tannhäuser globally, and then I'll say this is the first myth that got folded in, and this is the second myth that go got folded in. 
We start at the Wartburg Castle and its neighborhood uh, in medieval Germany in the 13th century. Uh, Tannhäuser has been away for a year and uh, he's been in this magical underground realm of Venus uh, under a mountain called the Venusburg. There's a tension in this story between like the natural, nice, realistic world of reality and this magical world, which I would argue has a, a nature of its own. It's just sort of the carnal, sensual side of nature. In many ways, Venus is a siren, and uh, she has been luring men for time immemorial to her lair, where she shows them pleasure and that kind of sensuality. After about a year, Tannhäuser has tired of this and uh, realizes that he wants to go back to the, the world. Uh, he hears some church bells and he realizes that he's a person in need of redemption. So he uh, sings a, a hymn of praise to Venus, but he also says that his true salvation lies, his true hope lies with the Virgin Mary, and that uh, repulses Venus so much that he is immediately and suddenly transported to a valley right outside of uh, the Wartburg castle. Uh, this would have been a tremendous coup de théâtre uh, for Wagner and for the theater at the time because they managed somehow to do a scene change where they took all of this beautiful, sensual scenery and made it disappear so that suddenly he was in this very pastoral and natural-looking real place. Once Tannhäuser is there, he sees a procession of pilgrims who are on their way to Rome. Uh, this is pre-Martin Luther, so we'll, I think, if I'm correct, Sam, we're still part of the Holy Roman Empire in this part of history. <laughs> Tannhäuser is deeply moved by the piety of these pilgrims, and he sings about and praises the wonders of God, and he considers joining them on their trek. Uh, but instead, a hunting party comes, and the Landgraf, uh, Hermann comes with some of his knives, uh, knights, not knives. <laughs> they recognize Tannhäuser and, and realize that they haven't seen him for a long time, so they beg him to return to the castle with them. Tannhäuser is reluctant because he's having this, this spiritual experience. But Wolfram, one of his buddies, one of his knight buddies from before, reminds him that he in his olden days, used to participate in these singing contest, contests, which is myth number two, by the way. The last time he participated in one, he drew the attention of Elizabeth, the Landgraf's niece. She was so taken by his singing um, about love, presumably, that she had interest in him, and he is interested in her back. So when he hears, she took a liking to him. He knows what he has to do. He has to go back and sing another contest. And that, in a nutshell, is Act 1. Act 2, uh, we go to Wartburg Castle's Hall of Song. And first, we meet Elizabeth there. She hasn't set foot in this Hall of Song since Tannhäuser last sang. And so she sings one of the big, famous tunes that opera goers might know, Dich teure Halle, uh, where 
she sings um, about how these song contests move her and and how she is moved too by Tannhäuser. And he comes in led by Wolfram. At first, Elizabeth is sort of shy and she tells him how she's been suffering in Tannhäuser's absence. Uh, but very soon she's joining him in singing the praise of love. And Wolfram sees, he eyeballs these two, and he realizes he may have opened Pandora's box, so to speak, because he actually has feelings for Elizabeth, but he has unwittingly connected the two of them, and his love for her is now playing second fiddle at best. The Landgraf is delighted to find his niece in the Hall of Song. They welcome the guests, uh, a bunch of Minnesänger who are about to have a competition. The Landgraf suspects that Tannhäuser is going to win this competition, so he sets the theme of the day to be singing about love. Wolfram starts. He sings a heartfelt tribute um, to love, but the, the love he's describing is sort of idealized and not really gritty in any way. It's not very real. Tannhäuser uh, starts his turn, and his mind has been, his heart has been transformed by his experience in the Venusburg. So he starts singing some pretty sensual poetry and some pretty, uh, even by modern standards, I would say it's a little bit naughty or worldly is maybe the better word. And the other Minnesänger are outraged by this. The women in the room are so outraged that they leave, except for Elizabeth. He goes on and on and on until he really crosses a line. Uh, the men in this room draw their swords and threaten to kill him. And Elizabeth uh, steps in between them. And she begs everybody, uh, she begs all of the knights for mercy for Tannhäuser. The Landgraf takes all of this under consideration and he pronounces a judgment. Tannhäuser can be forgiven, but only if he joins the pilgrims on their way to Rome to do penance. Uh, Tannhäuser first falls at Elizabeth's feet to thank her for saving him. And in some ways, not even just saving him for the first time, but really for the second time. Because in Act One, he was on his way to Rome, but hearing her name was this personal transformation for him. So that's sort of her saving him the first time. Uh, and then he rushes out of the hall to join the pilgrims. And that's the end of Act Two. Act Three happens several months later. Uh, first, we see Wolfram, who uh, has come across Elizabeth praying at a shrine in this valley. And as they are there together, the band of pilgrims returns from Rome. And Elizabeth expectantly looks at this group of people searching for Tannhäuser in vain. Uh, when she doesn't see him, she's absolutely crestfallen and prays to the Virgin Mary to receive her soul in heaven. And she leaves and Wolfram gazes after her and he uh, sings a beautiful hymn to the evening star, which is one of the other super famous tunes that opera goers will recognize from this show. He's still in love with this lady, but he can't do anything. Her heart is broken. She's, she's on her way to die, really. Finally, night falls and uh, a pilgrim approaches by himself. And it is Tannhäuser, who is weary from his trip. 
and from his experience in Rome, because uh, on the way there, he was super joyful. He saw all sorts of people being pardoned. This is back to myth number one, by the way. Um, but when it's his turn to have uh, the Pope take him as audience, the Pope tells him that he can no more be forgiven for the sins that he's committed by spending time in Venusburg, then it would be possible for the papal staff to uh, spring forth with green leaves again. And uh, Tannhäuser leaves completely bereft of hope. And as a consolation prize, I guess, he makes the decision that if that salvation isn't available to him, he'll simply go back to Venus in the Venusburg. Wolfram hears of his plan and, and tries to talk him out of it. And he mentions Elizabeth's name again. Uh, Venus, in the meantime, has appeared almost like a, the hungry siren that she is waiting to take her prey in Tannhäuser back to the Venusburg. But when Elizabeth's name is mentioned, Tannhäuser has a change of heart and Venus magically disappears again. But Tannhäuser doesn't realize that Elizabeth has died. So there's a funeral cortege that passes by with Elizabeth's corpse and, and the people mourning her. And when he sees it, he collapses and he dies too. The next morning at dawn, another group of pilgrims arrive uh, on their trek away from Rome, and they tell of a miracle. The Pope's staff has magically blossomed with fresh green leaves and uh, it's, it's a miracle. And that miracle represents a few things, I think. It represents uh, God's forgiveness of Tannhäuser, despite what the Pope said would happen. But it also represents this idea that we find very frequently in opera, and particularly romantic opera. A lot of times, characters who are in love with each other or who are destined to to be together with each other don't find that connection in life or at least this life they find it in the afterlife they find it after death and that's one of the big themes here i think that's that chapter for now but we should definitely include a little bit of talk about women and how they fit into this entire equation because there's sort of wagner the man, and then Wagner, the mythologist. <laughs> that was a fantastic synopsis of a complicated piece. The thing that I think strikes me the most about the opera um, when I was listening to it in preparation and listening to Jeremy explain the plot like this is this that Wagner is very interested in drawing upon the tension between sensuality, or we could even say sexuality, and a more sacred form of love. The church bells ringing on the one hand and him being drawn towards that, while on the other hand is Venus and the sort of more sensual side of things. The music itself in the opera has these little, um, I don't know how to describe it, but there's segments within the music that I, I think at the time were quite titillating. And, and the point of this, I think, is that Wagner is trying to tap into something in the zeitgeist in pre-revolutionary Germany. Remember, this is all pre-1848. I think that Wagner was really trying to put this on display for people, not necessarily to make them uncomfortable, 
but in fact to excite them on some level and to draw upon that paradox between the sacred and the profane. And I think this plays out definitely um, in, in terms of the performances as well. And we can get into that, but we should also, if you'd like to talk about women too, I'm happy to do that. You know, uh, that is so impressively perceptive, Sam. Um, uh, from, from the perspective of a listener, we musicians look at this era of writing in, in some ways with an eye to where Wagner will be in 10 years, like the future Wagner 10 years down the road from here, because he starts introducing a kind of chromaticism that really, uh, a friend of mine says, breaks Western music. We're no longer listening to simple, beautiful harmonies. This is a huge oversimplification. But we're starting to listen to harmonies that could be described as overripe or very sensual, highly dissonant with resolutions that come not two chords away, but two hours away, or in the case of the ring cycle, 15 hours away. And all of that tension that you described so beautifully is depicted through those kind of delayed resolutions in the musical vocabulary of this writing. There's another question that I really want to get into, and that's sort of the juicy, scandal-laden history of this of this uh, opera, and particularly the opera's failure in Paris. And we know that it failed for a couple of reasons. One was the ballet in Act One, and another reason for the unpopularity of uh, this, this piece was the unpopularity of the Princess von Metternich and of her native country of Austria. And so I'd just like to throw that open and hear more about that from um, both of you. Ballet was a huge part of the tradition of the Paris opera um, since the French Revolution and even before. But the, the ballet always happened a little later in the piece than it appears in Tannhäuser, which is right away, right away at, at the top of Act One. And of course, Wagner chose dramatic reasons to place it there because the ballet was a means of him visually depicting the carnal appetites that are apparent in Venusburg. Um, but the men who were the boyfriends and, you know, lovers of the dancers of the court de ballet were used to not showing up on time. They could, you know, have their dinner after being at the jockey club and then come uh, for act two or in the French operas, which were a five act structure, even act three, they could see their girlfriends dance and then take off and be done with their evening at the theater. So it was kind of disruptively shocking to them to have a ballet that was so central to the plot and also one that occurred so early. And many sources um, talk about how these members of the jockey club were some of the loudest leaders of hissing and booing at the uh, Paris Opera revival in the 1860s, which actually, if I remember correctly, only had three performances before they pulled the plug on it. I think it's just so fun to imagine a world in which opera goers, in this, in this case, in 1861, they were actually demonstrating and protesting outside the opera house in the wake of this scandalous insertion of the ballet. But it's just so amazing in 2020 to imagine a world in which opera goers would be so scandalized by some kind of change or some kind of performance, that there would be riots or, or violence. And this obviously reminds me of, of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring as well, right? 
that the the sort of Parisian reaction to this relatively, in our view, harmless from a modern perspective opera. I wanted to say a few things about Pauline von Metternich, the princess, if I could. When this happened, she was only about 25 years old, and she had been kind of a, a, a broker for Wagner um, abroad. The thing to know about her is that she was the granddaughter of Clemens von Metternich, the Austrian prince, who was the one responsible for reorganizing Europe into its current formation um, in the wake of Napoleon's defeat. So this was a conservative person who had reorganized Europe, inserted kings back into France and elsewhere. So the family name was growing increasingly unpopular before the revolutions happened in the 40s. And interestingly, she married her own uncle, so Clemens von Metternich's son. And he, so her husband and uncle was a diplomat. And so like many diplomats and the wives, by the way, of many diplomats, the princess was very much a cultural broker for the area. So Austria, especially, you know, Vienna, Paris, Dresden, and so forth. She was someone who was kind of bringing composers and artists around and kind of trying to connect people socially. But I think at the time, the mood in France and in many parts of Europe had soured against the Metternich name. So that's part of why that, uh, you know, she had been the one apparently to urge Wagner to insert the ballet for the Parisian performance. This is amazing. At the end of the synopsis sort of uh, alluded to Wagner's depiction of women uh, throughout his, his operas, which is sort of a complicated topic because in so many ways he idealizes a lot of women and it's it lies in such huge contrast to who he was as a person and his relationships with women which could be described kind of globally as terrible you know uh, he had two wives um his first wife he was with for 25 years they were miserable together both of them he had all kinds of affairs with on both relationships uh, very famous ones. Uh, he he had a lover, Matilda Wesendonk, uh, for whom he wrote a bunch of songs, um, which are super beautiful. But when she stopped being amused to him and stopped stopped really being his active lover, he completely cleared her out of his life. And it stands in such crazy contrast with uh, the depictions of a character like Elizabeth, who really becomes the the vehicle for Tannhäuser's salvation all the way around. And we can look at other depictions of women in Wagner's output. Perhaps the most notable is Brunhilde in The Ring Cycle, um, who starts out in Valkyrie, the second installment of The Ring, as being simply the Wunschmeit or the, the what do we call that? I suppose that's like a handmaiden or a, a person who executes the will of another person. And she does that for her father, the god of all gods, Wotan. But eventually she goes against his will. And over the course of three operas, uh, she chooses to sacrifice herself to commit suicide, really, over grief of, of uh, Siegfried, uh, who represents kind of the way forward of the world as it is understood. And then what happens is a complete 
annihilation of the entire world and a rebirth. Wagner said of the ring cycle, he says, the entire ring happens so that a woman can become wise. It just sort of drips with misogyny, I think, even though I think he means for the woman to be this amazing character. But I just in the last week or two read a quote attributed to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, as we know, is a huge was a huge opera fan and a huge patron uh, to all of our companies. She says of the ring cycle, it takes a woman to save the universe. And I like her version of that a lot better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I do, too. I, I was looking into this a little bit as well, um, and I found that, interestingly, with his first wife, apparently he had sent her letters every single day until they got divorced or until they separated, trying to convince her to move to where he was because she didn't want to move. And it seems like even though he had these problematic relationships with women, that he still felt very much attached to them in some way or another. The same was true with his second wife, Cosima, um, who I believe was 26 years younger than Richard Wagner. Um, and yet her diaries survive to this day. And what's interesting about their relationship is that at least from my very preliminary research into it, it seems like they still had a, a relatively close emotional relationship, despite the affairs and so forth, the sharing of sentiments and of, of, you know, of sexuality and of love and so forth. And yet we also know that he was, you know, stepping out on her and, and so forth. In fact, um, his relationship with her is where I got um, some information about another aspect of Wagner that I think we ought to talk about, which of course is, his famous anti-Semitism. So in, in one of these notes to his wife, or in, in one, uh, sorry, in one diary entry of his wife, she quotes him as saying, so after in, 18, in 1881, a theater had burned down in Vienna and hundreds of patrons died while they were in the theater. So his wife's diary, Cosima, said that Richard had joked to her that he hoped that the entire audience had been Jews and that they had been and that they had been watching a performance of Nathan, referring here to the play Nathan the Wise by Gotthold Lessing, which of course was a play about religious tolerance and coexistence between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Wow. And so here he is in the 80, in the 1880s, an older man at this point, mm -hmm. wishing that the people who had died in this fire had been Jews. And furthermore, um, Wagner had claimed that the very famous Felix Mendelssohn, the, the concert pianist, the grandson of, of course, the famous Jewish Enlightenment figure, Moses Mendelssohn, who was considered by all to be a prodigy, uh, the closest thing the 19th century had to a rock star at the time for his piano performances. Wagner wrote that Felix Mendelssohn's talent was, quote, shallow and unconnected to the soul of the folk and aimed at easy popularity, unquote. So that's kind of a way of Wagner 
um, suggesting that even though Felix Mendelssohn had been baptized, his Jewish ancestry meant that his work itself was inferior musically and that it was somehow not German. Um, this is kind of a very early form of anti-Semitism, which of course has been with us since the medieval period. Yeah. But in the 19th century, it's really starting to take off. One last piece I'll say on this. In his own diary, even in the 60s, this is just a couple of years after the Parisian disaster of, his, of, of Tannhäuser. He wrote, quote, in nature, it is such that wherever there is something to be parasitized, the parasite appears. And added, quote, a dying person is immediately found by the worms, which completely decompose and assimilate. The rise of the Jews means nothing else in today's European cultural life, end quote. So what he's saying here is that the way that capital and the way that the European institutions, he saw these things as decaying in the 60s. He blamed this on the Jews. This is a very early, you know, we think of Hitler when we hear this kind of rhetoric. I think that for all of us who are patrons of the arts, whether it's present day stuff or stuff from the classical period or the early modern period, everyone kind of has to contend with the complicated legacies of some of these artists. Of course, everyone recognizes that Wagner is one of the most influential musicians, not only of his time, but of all time. Mm. The question is, how do we as patrons go forward enjoying this music while also kind of recognizing some of the problematic views that he had, as you mentioned, towards women and, and of course, towards, towards Jews and his, and his influence on those things. And yet his, his music is so enduring and this opera is so enduring that I'll tell you, this is the last thing I'll say, I guess. My first exposure to it was as a young kid. Why? Because in 1957, Chuck Jones made a Looney Tunes adaptation of this called What's Opera Doc, yeah. in which Bugs Bunny plays Brunhilde, chased around by Elmer Fudd. <laughs> and, and, that, that, and he kind of, this was a mishmash of the ring cycle and of Tannhäuser. But yeah. some of the music in the, in, the, in the cartoon was from Tannhäuser. And so when you listen when I listened to it again in preparation for the podcast, I had flashbacks to being a young, a young kid watching Looney Tunes with my family. So it, these Absolutely. things enduring cultural legacy, you know? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm also hosting a web series through LA Opera uh, that's called Opera Happy Hour that involves a little bit of drinking uh, as well as learning. <laughs> and one of the thoughts that I talked about a couple episodes ago um, wasn't about a Wagner piece, but rather Puccini's Nessun Dorma, um, which is one of the most famous tenor arias that exists. It's it's tremendously moving. Um, I Like you, I have memories of those Looney Tune uh, cartoons. They're amazing. It, it, and it happened before I even knew what I was being exposed to. And Nessun Dorma is that kind of piece too, where if you just exist in, in Western Europe or in North America, or really at now the world is so global anywhere in the world, you've been exposed to that piece. And I remember the first time I heard a recording of Pavarotti singing it, I spontaneously burst into tears when he sang the high B. There was something about 
uh, I didn't even know what I was listening to exactly, but there was this force behind it that I found tremendously moving. The potential for art to speak to some really fundamental human experiences like that is uh, where its power lies, but it's also where these dangerous opportunities lie for people to co-opt that message. And I won't go deeply into that because there, there are some easy political comparisons that I could draw right now. But I think, you know, especially when you have a composer writing and saying such vile things, it's easy for other authoritarians and dictators to seize on that. And they don't even have to stretch very far to co-opt uh, the original artistic material. I hope that we as a human race can find ways to preserve the power of what art can do without without only using its cheapest, most segregating and divisive origins at times. But that's, you know, I, I'm curious um, because you you live in Germany, you know, that's a country that has strong laws and traditions to try to prevent what happened in World War II again. And we're watching in real time now a big struggle with a rise from the far right, uh, both there and in Austria and throughout Europe, really. It's true. I mean, I agree with what you say that we have to be careful not to reduce cultural output to one thing or the other. I always tell my students that history is complicated mm -hmm. and that um, unfortunately for people who want to distill things down to one thing, to one message, it often is the case that it's a gray area. Now we can absolutely and should absolutely condemn all of the vile anti-Semitism that I was just reading uh, um, on, on the show. But at the same time, I think it's wonderful that this music has the ability to make you shed a tear or to bring people together or to bring certain communities together, whether it's kids watching Looney Tunes in the 90s or patrons at the LA Opera who are very much enjoying this music. I've seen parts of the Ring Cycle here in Germany um, live, and it's been a to totally marvelous experience. Mm. To your point about the rise of the far right, it's true that, especially in the wake of the 2015 refugee crisis, there has been the rise of the alternative for Germany, the AFD party here, and they now have federal representation in the German parliament. Interestingly, in the present moment, I realize we're getting a little far away from the opera now, but it's interesting to note that at this point, they are sinking in the polls a bit, in part, I think, because of the coronavirus pandemic. I think that voters kind of are realizing that the AFD doesn't have much to offer in terms of protecting the German citizenry from the perils of the pandemic. And similarly, or for not, not similarly, for different reasons altogether. Um, there's been quite a lot of high profile cases in which AFD party members have been discovered as being actual neo-Nazis or having uttered, you know, sympathetic statements about the, not, the National Socialist regime under Hitler. And then of course they get kicked out of the party, but the the image, the, the impression remains on the voter that the, the party is kind of hopelessly tainted um, mm -hmm. by 
a kind of politics that is a bridge too far, even for very far right-leaning people sometimes. Yeah. That being said, they still are hovering around 9 to 11% in opinion polls. So there's definitely um, a large push against them, I'll say, in every area of society I walk around, even on the streets here, and you'll see posters kind of saying they need to be stopped and so forth. So it is certainly a concern. Um, it's actually thinking of what you said about autocrats. In 1937, Hitler gave a speech in Munich at the opening of this German art exhibition. This was art that was approved uh, by the, the Nazi regime, art that would be appropriate for the kind of German ideals that he was trying to promote and his regime was trying to promote, you know, very traditional, conservative, muscular, Aryan, and all the rest. Yeah. And he said about Wagner that, quote, Wagner had the people on his side. Now, this is a kind of populist revisionism about Wagner. Wagner's music was popular at the time, including in Dresden. The Paris thing was a disaster, but in general, he was pretty well well liked. He, his operas were performed in other European capitals outside of Europe, in New York and, and in London, in the Baltic states, in Bohemia. And so he was he was well liked by cross sections of society, but Hitler was co-opting him because of what Wagner was trying to do to kind of create this German past, this German tradition. So Hitler could say, we now, National Socialists in the 1930s, are the continuation of this long trajectory of Germanness. Yeah. But you know, what Hitler probably would not have wanted to know was that Wagner had participated in these revolutions in the 40s and that he was sympathetic to left-wing causes. Yeah. And wait a minute, if he was sympathetic to left-wing causes, then why was he an anti-Semite? So in other words, like I said before, history is always quite complicated, especially when you go back 200 years. I wish there were some beautiful sound button to just kind of say, this is the solution to that problem. I, and unfortunately, the like history is complex and multi-layered, so is the solution to this. Um, as people who are in the business of making art, I think we really have to be diligent and, and uh, sensitive to all of those issues at play and not, not gloss over the fact that they exist and also dig as deeply as possible for the central human truths that exist in these pieces because those messages, I believe, are the ones that are really worthy of continuing and, and being realized. I completely agree with you. Some of this music is so, so incredibly moving and so complicated also. I mean, just the, the technical prowess that goes into composing, you know, writing and performing, conducting this kind of layered music is just so um, mind boggling that the music itself, I think, is absolutely worth pondering and, and celebrating and the themes too. I mean, the, the pull between sacred and profane love is something that I think many people resonate with even today. 
Thanks very much. And I said thanks to both of you and to uh, someone who knows nothing about Germany after 1648, after the end of the 30 Years' War. This has been fantastic. I've really learned a lot. Man, what a pleasure to get to do this. How fun. Yeah, I had a complete blast. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.